Welcome to Hunter Gatherers, the podcast of Hunter S. Thompson stories. We are broadcasting, if you hear a little noise in the background, we are live at the 10th Gonzo Fest. And what we're hearing will be the last Gonzo Fest, maybe. But ladies and gentlemen, as always here on the podcast, I'm Christopher Tidmore, joined by the main host of this program... Mr. Curtis Robinson. Well, Christopher, it's uh, it's Gonzo Fest here. How are you liking Louisville so far? I'm loving Louisville, and this is the second time I'm here. But this is this is the time where we are embracing the idea of Hunter as clay formed out of the Ohio River and Louisville. And there's nobody who doesn't understand the clay that created the vessel that created the Savage Journey than the author of Savage Journey, <laughs> Mr. Peter Richardson. Peter, you've been so kind to be on the panels here today. And one of your first questions was a simple one. Define Gonzo. Right. And so uh, yeah, as everybody was sweating up on stage, let's start off with the book itself. This has become, of the many books that have been written about Hunter, this one... I've had so many people come up to me and said, this is the book. This is the one that captures it better. This is the one that honestly gets into the psychology really well. What is The Savage Journey? I, I think of the as of Savage Journey as his journey as a writer. I mean, I didn't feel like I could add much to what's already been written by the people who knew him well uh, and wrote these extensive biographies, which I benefited from and learned from. But I thought... You know, I think Hunter wanted to be taken seriously as a writer. He even mentioned that a couple of times in interviews. And I think, you know, we all know that his persona and, and his life and his his personality and just the force of his character and just how interesting he was and his friends and and his his literary network, which was substantial. There's a, so many moving parts in his literary career. And I thought, as David Streitfeld once said, you know, he, he sort of stands in front of his work sometimes and we can't really see the work very clearly. Now, you know, in, in his case, it's very difficult to tease out the person and the persona in the work. It's, it's an impossible project to do that. But I do think sometimes it's, it's good to return to the work and, 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 and also to think about his literary formation. How did he become the writer he became? And so I thought I might have something to add in that the geographical aspect to that. I mean, it, uh, you're, you come at it from a, I think from a very San Francisco Bay yep. Area thing, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, compared to uh, someone like a Warren Hinkle, he was understated. Yeah, no, and I and I, I sort of came to Hunter Thompson as a topic, not as a reader. I knew about Hunter Thompson long before I knew about Warren Hinkle. But I did come to um, think about Hunter Thompson. Tell us who, tell us who Warren Hinkle was. I, I, I never met him. Right. I, I, I can't believe he died before I had a chance to meet him. I think it was inconsiderate. <laughs> and I hold it against him, frankly. Yeah, I'm yeah. bitter about it. I don't know how you would do that in line. But explain who Warren Hinkle was and, and, and why he was such a big deal. For for in, in I think he was a I think he's underrated I think he was a big deal in the in the in the Hunter scheme. Absolutely, I think he really was a big deal in, in in Hunter Thompson's career. Not the only editor that made a huge contribution, but but Warren was the editor of Ramparts Magazine, which Hunter really liked when Hunter was living in San Francisco, and they they met, they got to know each other, they enjoyed each other's company. Each, each enjoyed a drink. There are many, many great stories about Warren in that department. But his first big accomplishment was running Ramparts Magazine, 
which wasn't around very long, but it made a big impact between 1962, when it was a Catholic Literary Quarterly, and then until about 1968-69, when, when Warren turned it into this kind of iconic muckraker based in San Francisco. And, and Warren was a San Francisco guy, fourth generation, never really left. I mean, he was a man of the world, but, but you know, San Francisco was his, was his home. And, and Hunter wasn't there very long. He was only in San Francisco for three or four years. But, but I make the argument that much of his literary formation happened in San Francisco, that the editors that he worked with, he met there, and that a lot of his growth as a writer occurred there. And I think he... Eventually, the, the Rolling Stone hookup was, of course, when Rolling Stone was in San Francisco, mm-hmm. right. not when they moved off to New York. And, exactly. And, and the two guys that co-founded Rolling Stone magazine both worked at Ramparts magazine immediately before they started. the DNA of that, yes. So there was a kind of genealogical link between the two men. Now, was he affiliated with Scanlon's as well? Uh, Warren was, yeah. yeah so so Warren. when Warren left Ramparts... Um, how many t- how many issues were there of Scanlon's, actually? I think there were eight issues. There were eight issues, yeah. except I did a documentary once on the on this magazine in New Orleans, and it was only a few issues, and it was so influential. And everyone says, well, that's got to be the most influential short run. I'm like, no, 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 no. Scanlon's reverberates through history right. for right. that. And what's so important about Scanlon's and then Rolling Stone, but especially Scanlon's, was it, it would be really hard for Hunter Thompson to do the work that he became famous for. You know, that's not going to run in Esquire magazine That's at first. It's not going to run in Saturday Evening Post. You know, it wasn't even running in Playboy. He was getting his stuff spiked at Playboy. So it was Warren who came in. The uh, Jean-Claude Keeley piece that ran in Scanlon's was actually commissioned by Playboy magazine. Playboy hated it. Warren came in, ran it in Scanlon's. Yeah, it's in it's in uh, it's in Shark Hunt. Yeah, it's 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 amazing, and you uh, you can kind of see why Playboy didn't want to run it. But the big reason I gather is because uh, Playboy was trying to get Chevrolet to advertise in the magazine. And Hunter's attitude about about Chevron was very irreverent. I just I find it fascinating that, given historical reputation, that Playboy was considered Hunter Thompson too out there for their for their readers. I mean, it's just. But honestly, Playboy played it safe most of the time. I mean, it was the starlets and the, the naked pictures, but it wasn't. I mean, I hate to quote somebody like Bob Guccione, but he said, "For for filth, this is a little too clean." And so you know. That's, I think that's the only time I will ever do that bad of a quote, but, you know. Well, well if the reason you're running a certain kind of uh, journalism, a certain kind of things to prove your cultural relevance so that you qualify as not being pornographic under the Henry Miller uh, code, then uh, you didn't want someone waving a Hunter Thompson piece of front and say, right. well, then how do you explain this, sir? Yeah. And, I could, you know, that, that's, I mean, that's what they were doing, and, and, and that you know, many, many, many good writers profited from that. But in terms of the journey... Tell us the other parts of how you think San Francisco played into the, into that journey. I you know I I think of it as a launch pad, but what do you think? It was a launching pad. I mean, I think he he was doing good work before he came to San Francisco, but I think later in life he really realized that that was a, that was the kind of peak era, you know, that he was in the right place at the right time. The people he was meeting, Ken Kesey would be such a person. He met Ken Kesey after he wrote the Rolling Stone book, or in, yeah, shortly after he he wrote. Uh, Sorry, not Rolling Stone, Hell's Angels. 
and um, so he was in he was in the San Francisco Bay Area when things were starting to happen. Campus activism at the University of California Berkeley, the free speech movement, um, you know, uh, the Black Panther Party, um, and and all and the and the counterculture in San Francisco. Uh, he wasn't a hippie. He wasn't a Black Panther. He wasn't a campus activist, but he had something to write about. He wasn't that interested in politics at that time. I mean, he doesn't. He didn't want to write about politics at that time. So he takes the assignment for the Nation magazine to write about Hell's Angels, which is kind of consistent with what he was doing. He was writing about exotic West Coast subcultures. It was. It was. It was much more cultural than political at the yes. time. I mean, the the. Uh, uh, the non-student left was was a topic uh, you mentioned on a panel today. The the Hashbury is the capital of the hippies mm-hmm. and those mm-hmm. kinds of things. And, uh, and I really thought uh, uh, you made a good point that that he really found himself. I think it's some of his best writing, writing. And you know, and a lot of it was 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 what you were seeing then in the alternative press. That was the kind of things that were you probably would have seen in the Village Voice or something. And it was just really uh, uh, insightful. Uh, an articulate, but it was uh, it, it was very 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 San Francisco. I mean, uh... yeah, no doubt. I mean, Ramparts really emerges is kind of a point of origin for a lot of work that came later. There wasn't really anything in San Francisco that preceded Ramparts that that you could say, oh well, it makes sense that Rolling Stone came out of there and others. But Ramparts, you really could see that its success not as a not as an enterprise but with readers and in journalism. So they never got their finances together. And Hunter never wrote for Ramparts. He, I think he appeared on the masthead, but he never actually submitted something and had it published there. And then they, they um, filed for bankruptcy. Warren Hinkle left and started Scanlon's Magazine. And, you know, he, was already, he, had, already met, he had already met Hunter, and so, and then he was the first person to pair Hunter with Ralph Steadman. And, you know, really the rest is history in some ways. And Hunter was very excited about the possibility of a franchise that he and Ralph Steadman would go around and go to the Super Bowl and go to America's Cup and go to New Orleans. And, you know, uh, well, yeah, that's what they were going to do. They were going to, uh, that's right. They were going to go to the iconic American things and do that to them. Yeah. The yeah. Masters Golf The Masters. <laughs> and and, and they, didn't they go to the America's Cup? They did, didn't they? Finally they finally did. Remember, yes. they were, they were going to try to write F the Pope on the on the, on the the boat? That's right. Oh, that's yeah. a great story. I'd yeah. I totally forgotten about that. Now, the other thing that I thought is, is, is interesting, uh, the parallel from that is often said to be that people who are writing for for little or no money for a variety of websites now. They're doing the same. I mean, I, I had people tell Hunter, well, you know, it's different now, Hunter. We have to write for free. And he's like, I wrote for free. Yeah. I wrote a lot of stuff for free or very little. Oh, yeah. Like the, the Hells Angels piece for the nation was $100, you know. Yes, 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 yes. So. And, uh, and the other thing that I think is interesting, uh, by the way, almost everyone that I run into casually thinks that the Derby piece was a Rolling Stone piece. Yeah, see, that's... All the that, time, yeah. That's the funny thing about it. So th- when Scanlon's crashes after eight issues, um, Jan Wenner, who had worked at Ramparts with Ralph Gleason, th- those were the two people that co-founded Rolling Stone magazine, he scoops in and snaps up uh, Hunter to write for Rolling Stone magazine. And Warren Hinkle never forget, forgives Jan Wenner for that. There, there's, a, there, there's a kind of bitterness there 
that lasts for quite quite a long time. But Jan saw that this was going to be a great addition to this music magazine. Even though Hunter never really wrote about music, he became Rolling Stone magazine's most but popular But talk about writer. the role of the vote in that. The voting age went from 21 to 18, and the way to get to those young voters, there, there were no blogs, there's no Instagram. How, how, how would you do that? You would do that with a youth-based uh, music magazine. So talk, talk a little bit about that fortuitous event. Right, right. So after... A couple of long pieces, including Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, which was a two-part piece. Big success. You know, now he's he's got the shine, right? So uh, Jan and he decide that um, Hunter should cover the 1972 presidential campaign for the reason you mentioned, that 18-year-olds can vote in the 1972 election for the first time. And Rolling Stone thinks that it can move the needle if um, Hunter Thompson goes out and covers the campaign. And, um, you know, it sounds pretty good on paper, but the truth of the matter was nobody in Washington, D.C., certainly nobody at, at, the, at the upper echelons of either of the two major parties really cared very much what a fledgling rock magazine in San Francisco cared about any of that stuff, right? And it, it's, they really didn't understand the youth vote. So we spent, for the 50th anniversary of Fear and Loathing and on the campaign trail, we spent all of last year each month with a chapter talking about what was happening in politics. And we're both political reporters of training. And I recounted a story that's not in the book, but Hunter knew about because he knew because he had talked to my old boss, Morton Blackwell, about it. The Nixon campaign will fly all of these young people from all over the country to Miami. And they have this big rally. And they paid for all the flights. And they never got any information, like their live, their contact information, their volunteer information, or anything. Because this concept of volunteering, it, it was almost alien to the political process. Right. And yet Hunter is writing about the people that are coming out to work for McGovern. He's, writing, he's going from a sort of fascination of the crowd. We talk about George Wallace being a proto-Trump. And then going into sort of the pseudo-love affair with Wallace. And he's recounting... He's catching on to something that the major parties really aren't. Right, right. Not only is he catching on to what the major parties don't know yet, but also the mainstream press isn't really. The, the mainstream press has its own kind of subculture. Hunter's not part of that. He's And if he is a part of it, he's at the very bottom of the food chain when he arrives. Nobody knows about Rolling Stone. Nobody cares what he thinks. He's got the force of his personality but he doesn't have the resources or the contacts or any of the stuff that you would need to succeed in that setting. He turns all of those um, liabilities into assets by reporting it the way he always reported, which is to tell the truth, you know, the unvarnished truth as he understood it. So he would tell you that story, you know. He would tell you, hey, covering Nixon is like covering the Pope. You know, covering McGovern is like covering a Grateful Dead tour, you know. And, you know, for Rolling Stone's readership, they got that, you know. That, that came through very clearly. And so, you know, he's, he's, he's posting all of these dispatches and kind of wearing himself out. He's also learning a ton. You know, he's pressing the McGovern people for more and more information. You know, he, he's not really trying to come off as... The sophisticated guy. He's asking questions, he's learning, and then he's reporting it in the only way that he knows how, which is, you know, to, to tell you 
what's happening before his eyes. And, and, you know, a lot of the other places were not doing that for one reason or another. The editors expected a certain kind of story, hard news, you know, no, no editorializing, got to be this, make it look like the AP dispatch, you know, make it look like the, the thing that goes out from Associated Press. Going away with the new journalism anyway, and he, just, he, and he brought it to that world. Well, now, he, he started out, you know, he never wanted to be a reporter. You know, he wanted to be the second coming of Fitzgerald. Uh, he wanted to write novels. Uh, when, you, when you write about his, when you write and talk about his writer's journey, how, how do you reconcile that part of his personality, which was, you know, particularly, uh, you look at the early letters, it was so strong that, that, it, that he wanted to be, he wanted to come that way. And, and, and then it's particularly the 68... Uh, uh, riots, the Democratic riots at the convention. Yeah. Talk about talk about how how you know what was it? Steinbeck says you think you're taking a trip, the trip takes you. Yeah. So he thought he was taking a journey. Yeah, yeah. So with the success of Hell's Angels, he quickly gets three new book contracts from Random House, and he can't complete any of them. I mean, one of them is off the table um, because the facts on the ground change. The whole project goes away. But this book on the on the American dream, he just cannot complete. He's really struggling with it. And in the meantime, he goes to Chicago for the Democratic National Convention. And he's completely astonished by what he witnesses there. And it's it's a kind of it's a kind of a plot point in his life. For the first time, he starts wanting to write about politics. You know, not exotic West Coast subcultures, which is what Tom Wolfe had been doing, and he sort of said, Oh, I could do that. And he did, but 68, he decides, I'm going to start writing about politics. So that was the first step in that journey. The second one is meeting Warren Hinkle, I think, you know, and, and because, of course, Ramparts is running a lot of political content, you know, and he, so, you know, connecting with Warren Hinkle is the second big thing. The third big thing, of course, is Warren putting him together with uh, Ralph Steadman. And, and adding that kind of visual component. Very, very important. And of course, his best work will be with Ralph Steadman from then on. And I think the fourth big thing is uh, that he uh, uh, chose to write in the voice of Raul Duke. Not in his political reporting, but in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And that added dimension, which is, you know, he's, he's directly importing fiction into his nonfiction. So it's always a kind of hybrid. And um, even though his traditional fiction writing career isn't going very well, um, you know, this kind of fictional approach to, to the kind of journalism that he's doing liberates him in a way. And so I, I, think, I think that's a, a pretty important uh, part of his growth. And that allows him to start completing these projects and, and actually to create what we think of now as gonzo journalism. Raul Duke, everyone on the panels here at Gonzo Fest has talked about the idea that if Hunter Thompson became a character or a characterization of himself, Raul Duke was his ability to separate himself and tell a story that he couldn't, in the voice or at least the mental voice of the kid from Louisville, tell. Right. You spent more time than almost anybody else trying that in the book, Savage Journey of the that breaking that dichotomy. How is Ronald Duke different than Hunter Thompson? Well, I think it, I think it opens up 
the possibilities. I mean, you think about the, the Kentucky Derby piece where he presents himself as himself for most of the article. Actually, at the end of the article, he starts referring to himself in the third person, interestingly. Um, but for, mostly you think, oh, this is Hunter Thompson referring to himself in the first person. And Ralph Stedman's Ralph Stedman and so on. So with Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and the introduction of Raul Duke as the narrator, you know, he can be more fanciful, for one thing. And, of course, he can play around more with his, with his wingman. Uh, we think, okay, that's Oscar Acosta. But, he, of course, it's Dr. Gonzo, and he's not a Chicano. He's a Samoan. And so, so you get more invention, I think. And, and maybe the number one thing is this, this inventory of the drugs in the trunk in the very first few pages of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. We now know he, they probably had some Benzedrine and some dexedrine, and some alcohol, and some weed, and Oscar had a handgun, you know. That's it. They didn't have this galaxy of drugs that he so lovingly itemizes at the beginning of the book. And you think, man, I'm glad he gave himself permission to imagine that, right? So I think, you know, it it just liberates his imagination a little bit more. And then when Rolling Stone starts fact-checking that story, which runs in two, two halves in November 1971, he just says, you might as well, well fact-check a Bob Dylan song. You know? and, and it's an acknowledgement that, that there's fiction in here, you know, in addition to you know, hallucination, imagination, all these other elements that we... That we associate with him about it, about why he didn't publish the biggest book as a novel, and sort of pressed him on it a bit. I said, you know, because Kerouac had the original names in, in on the road, and then they made him go back and take them out because it was a novel. And uh, he said an interesting thing. He said, "Well, that is primarily a marketing decision." Well, he had a contract for a nonfiction book, and, <laughs> and Random House said, "Is this fiction or nonfiction?" Well, what does my contract say, my friends? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and you know, I would have said that the correct answer is, is this fiction or nonfiction? Yes. Or no. You know, it's really a blend. And that, that's the thing about it is that I think his fiction writing friends like William Kennedy got that. They got it that Hunter was doing his fiction, but getting paid and Rolling Stone paid. We were talking about that a little bit earlier. So Rolling Stone had the circulation and the advertising that allowed him to sort of do the work that he wanted to do and earn a living. And so, and that's when he discovered, hey, this is my calling card. This is my franchise, right? So, but it took him a little while to put that together. It's unusual. He's a pretty shrewd guy about the business. But, uh, you know, he, he wasn't sure at first that he wanted to go down that road. He thought it would squander his credibility as a political journalist. And so many, it's, he's become so consequential as a political journalist you, you go to an event a Gonzo Fest, uh, a Gonzo Fest event like this you kind of see the global sense of Hunter Thompson but most Hunter Thompson readers come via the Vegas book or they kind of, and they don't think of him as a political journalist it's amazing Curtis and I spent most of our formative years in Washington DC yeah. where they think of oh Hunter Thompson the political writer who happened to do this stupid book about Vegas right, right. It's, it's a totally different attitude and um, I point out to people that 
you know, the name Mark Twain was used on that panel you were on. Mm-hmm. Well, Mark Twain was a newspaper reporter who's writing about weird things, but he's also writing about contemporary issues, and he's blending the idea of fiction and fact in a lot of his stories to tell a bigger truth. So, is Raul Duke Huckleberry Finn? Yeah, I, I do think there is a strong connection there, actually, and I and I think uh, Hunter was aware of it. You know, I think he saw in Twain a kind of a, a kind of way forward, not in the direct sense that Tom Wolfe was a way forward for him. I think at that time, but that was a stepping stone for him. You know, eventually he goes on to to do something, you know, far more unique in the that that Gonzo literature. But yeah, you're right that. Most people come to him through Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Maybe the movie too, not the book. Oh, the right? movie's been the movie's been a great, great, great movie's a, a great gateway. Drug. Yes, yes, yeah, no doubt, no doubt. And and then it's about the persona. You were on the you were on the panel with John Brick. He's one of the few professors who actually teaches Hunter Thompson. We've, we've had many who said, "Well, we're trying to figure out how to do that." He literally shows the movie. Yeah, uh, because he says it's the only way to get my kids. Interested and yes, and focused. I used to assign Hell's uh, I used to assign Hell's Angels, and then I ended up assigning just the article version of that, and then often the uh, Hashbury, you know, the 1967 essay on San Francisco hippies, which is really interesting to compare, for example, to what Joan Didion was writing about the San Francisco hippies. But that's short enough for the students to, you know, sort of ingest and do a little compare and contrast. But, you know, we're talking about students now that were born after 9-11. And so hippies are a kind of historic, that's ancient history. Yeah, and they're, they're, you know, is, was Fred Flintstone a, hip, a hippie or, or just, you know, what what's, what's the deal? I you know, It all blurs back there. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of like, okay, I guess we have to know this stuff. But and that really gets the point. So Curtis has said, and I think very few people would disagree with this point, that it had gone so fast. In a hundred years, most authors won't be remembered. In a hundred years, Hunter Thompson will still be read. Is there a timelessness, even though the events that he's re- describing, whether it's the Vegas book at the end of the, the sort of the conclusion of the 60s, or it's Fear and Loathing, or it's some of the others, He's describing a snapshot in time, but is it in such a way that it is timeless? Yes, it's so vivid. And I think even the campaign book, right, over 40 years now, more than that, and you can read it with interest. It does not feel old. It does not feel stale. It, it's, it's, you read about it's, George Wallace in that book, and you're like, oh, Donald Trump. Yeah, it, it, you yeah. pointed that out. It's, yeah. we, we talked about, we literally broke down. We also pointed out the end. The interesting part where Hunter's lamenting the, 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 the McGovern loss and he can't talk to the world, yet we point out in the race there were no coattails that the surge actually helps several people. One particular guy in a race he was not supposed to win, a 29-year-old Joe Biden. So right, right. It, it, something's not relevant until you realize it's extremely relevant. Yeah, and that the funny thing is, of course, as you know, I mean, that book was described as the least factual and most accurate account of the campaign. It's also the most memorable, right? I don't think anybody else is talking about it. Of course, they had the, they had the franchise, the Teddy White franchise before that, about all the presidential campaigns, but yeah, uh, the making of the president. 
uh, it was the Theodore the White, and then, yes. then they had the selling yes, president, yes. right, McGinnis. But the thing about that 72 campaign is this is really the only game in town. If you're going to read about that campaign, you're probably going to read this one, number one. And then what you see about Tom, uh, Thompson that maybe these new newer readers don't see by looking at Vegas, the Vegas book is, he's prophetic. It's not just that. Absolute profe- that he's that's, accurate, that's a great point. It's Absolutely prophetic. prophetic. So that's a, that puts you in a whole different category as a writer. And, in terms of in terms of your durability, that's pretty good. You know, prophecy will keep you current. You know, so that, there's that Edward Albee quote where if heroes. Uh, I'm sorry, I said it was uh, Ed Abbey said, "Hunters a seer, he's one who sees." And, and you know that that's that's true. And, you know, I always pitch people uh, hunter fans on Hey Rube because a lot of the political stuff he put in Hey Rube, he wrote about the endless war and the war on terror, and he wrote about it before 9-11. I mean, he, it, it's almost eerie how much he saw the forever war coming. Yeah, and also the kaleidoscopic quality of the media by that time. He's writing for ESPN at the end of his career. He comes back to being a sports reporter, and yet he's the guy that writes very quickly and precisely about the 9-11 strike the day after for ESPN. And, you know, that's just, that tells you a lot about the media of, of that time as well, that, that, that it would emerge online from a sports outlet. Well, yes, and I well. point out, as somebody who was both writing for a newspaper and on air the day it happened, what Hunter's writing has perspective when we're all in shock. So covering, so being live after 9-11, and it, it's terrifying to me that I talk to people, kids, and they're like, oh, I wasn't born yet. It's just, but it has been you know, 22 years. You sit there, and all of us, this is another Pearl Harbor. Hunter is looking at it bigger at the moment. Mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you how impossible that was. Curtis can tell you, as a reporter, making deadline the next day, right. trying to figure... It was not something you could do in the mental state unless you were extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, part of that was he was farther away, maybe. And, you know, he had stopped trying to report from the scene, from the from the political conventions and so on. It was a Hunter Thompson story, right. no matter right. what else was going on. Right. You know, right. Roxanne Pulitzer says, you know, she was having this trial in Miami. And came in, this judge stops the trial and welcomes Hunter to his, to his court. And you're like... All right, who's that guy? That, yeah. was, that was an amazing piece, <laughs> and um, and you know, he also lost his 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 nemesis. He lost Nixon, and I think something went out of his writing a little bit when Nixon resigned. You know, he goes after Reagan a little bit. He goes after George W. Bush, but not with the same energy. After Clinton, he went after. You know, uh, he was not overly partisan. He he did not like authority in any form. Right, that's true. But, ha- but something went out with Nixon, right? The, the, the well, so Nixon was so perfect. Yeah, well, like, uh, what, what was he said? Unless you believe in the actual personification of evil. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's not bad. No. We're almost out of time, and I have to, Peter, Peter thank you for coming on this program, talking about the, your wonderful book, Savage Journey, which is available in many places, including the Garden District Bookshop in New Orleans. You, you owe me a few signatures on those books. But I do want to ask. So we keep a lot of these thing, a lot of these interviews. We talk about Thomas Wolfe, this power, this friendship, and I think there is. I'm firmly convinced there is a parallel biography of Tom Wolfe and Hunter Thompson to be written. 
But I'm curious, for all the close friendships, for all the stories about how Hunter sends the recording of the whole day to Wolf about this is what a gang rape sounds like, all the back and the first draft of the Vegas book that goes there, how much do they really influence each other? How are they truly parallel? Are Thomas Wolf and Hunter Thompson truly parallel lives that go in different directions? Are they sort of the, the, the two polars of the new journalism of the time? Or are they yeah, very different? I, no, I see your point. Yeah, no, I think, you know, what, what, what Hunter would say, did say about Tom Wolf was that, you know, he was born, but he, had, he was a great reporter. <laughs> and Hunter never thought of himself as a reporter. He called himself a journalist, but he never called himself a reporter. I mean, after his very, very early days. And, you know, with Wolf, they, there are many points of contact, right? They, but Wolf wanted to write fiction, too. And he did crack off four novels. But, you know, they, you know I, I'm not sure that, that that's the thing that he's going to be remembered for. Um, but he was such a huge inspiration for Hunter. And, um, you know, it, it did show him a way forward at a, really, uh, at a really critical time. There were many differences, including political ones. Um, same with Joan Didion, but uh, and then Joan Didion had this fantastic third act, right, with all the grief work that she did at the end of at the end of her career. But I think if it's a straight up comparison between those two writers, I think we're going to find that um, the the judgment's going to tilt toward Thompson in terms of being the most distinctive voice in the second American voice in the second half of the 20th century. You know, if you pick up Wolf and you read it, you'll know it's Wolf. But there's something about Thompson's writing, I think, that is um, might fare better over time than, than Tom Wolf's. I cannot think a better way to leave it. Uh, Speed Richardson, thank you so much. The book is Savage Journey. And this has been a fantastic journey with you today on Hunter Gatherers. Thank you very much. Southern gentleman hit the highway and gave us stories we could share of crooked schemes, shattered dreams of people everywhere. Road of whiskey screams and motel rooms where no one seemed to care. Road of deep, dark, secret places made us feel that.